Welcome to the Afros and Knives podcast, an interview series that elevates the stories of Black women working in food and beverage, food media, food science, food justice, and hospitality. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this episode is a conversation with the founder and the original Black foodie herself, Edin Hagos. Black foodie is a community that explores food through a Black lens. They spotlight the best of African, Caribbean, and Southern cuisine. And if you love discovering new stories, cultures, traditions, and flavors, then Black Foodie has you covered. As we begin to turn the corner into fall and winter, well, forget the corner, we we pretty much walking down the street, aren't we? Into the holiday and giving seasons, cookbooks should definitely be making it to the top of your list as a gift. Uh, One of the gifts uh, of this year has been the release of Chef Bryant Terry's book, Vegetable Kingdom. Um, In Vegetable Kingdom, Chef Terry breaks down the fundamentals of plant-based cooking. This is his fifth cookbook, and he offers up recipes that put that puts vegetables front and center, which will be incredible for those of us who will be either eating or serving um, more vegetable-centric dishes throughout the rest of the year and into the colder months. Um, He also provides a list of tools that will support you as you work through the book. And one of my favorite features, the dopest playlist this side of Spotify. Um, We're talking about, you know, hit the hits, man, like Stevie Wonder and Lil Wayne and Miles Davis and Outkast and Sarah Vaughn and Janelle Monae and just so many more on that list. Um, Like when was the last time you got a cookbook and it offered a soundtrack? Uh, Vegetable Kingdom is available anywhere books are sold and the Vegetable Kingdom playlist is available on Spotify. I already follow it and I listen to it when I'm cooking and when I'm not cooking. Um, Thank you to all of the Afros and Knives Patreon members. Your continued monthly support is deeply appreciated and to join the Patreon family you can go to patreon.com backslash afros and knives i would love to see that community grow so we can you know so we can offer more stuff there's some really unique gifts coming up for patreon members only and as usual i'm always working on some really cool content you'd be surprised how challenging it can be to come up with unique and valuable content for people um Especially if you, you know, if support means a lot to you and you want people to walk away with a unique experience. So um, thank you again for your support and for your patience. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to like, share and subscribe. I also love comments, reviews and feedback. I am currently kind of in the throes of like really thinking about where the podcast can go, how the brand can expand, what more of an impact that it can make on the rest of the world and on the people who are listening. So your comments, reviews and feedback definitely help me um, help inform a lot of my decisions and a lot of my thinking. Uh, Be sure to visit the Afros and Knives uh, website, afrosandknives.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter. There's some really cool features there. If you are interested in submitting a piece, poetry, essays, recipes, just about anything, like definitely reach out. um, And I would love to feature some folks uh, on the newsletter every week. Uh, And also shop the store. There's some really cool stuff happening in the store. I'm very proud of the new designs. Um, It's definitely hoodie season and hoodies work all summer, all winter long. and well into this early spring. So like, you know, get your hoodie game up. Um, And then, you know, you can catch up on any past episodes. All episodes are available on the website um, for all three seasons. And um, 
I'm always going back to like clean up things and tweak things and just, you know, improve the improve your experience overall on the website. So thank you again for listening. And now here is my interview with Eden. Hi, everyone. My name is Eden Hagos or Eden, if you want to say it the English way, I am the founder of Black Foodie and I love food and I love exploring food from a black perspective. I started this journey five years ago now, and I started because of many reasons. So I grew up in an Ethiopian family and they opened one of the first Ethiopian restaurants in my hometown. So I grew up seeing them in the family business and the hustle, but I didn't really appreciate the food or where I came from until later in life when I experienced racism eating out on my birthday, I was treated like trash and it sucked and it really shook me. And it made me rethink a lot of things as to why this continues to happen and why I personally wasn't supporting black restaurants, like the ones that my parents had opened. And it just caused me to reflect and connect with other people and create a space for us by us. So that's basically how I started Black Foodie and the journey has been kind of rocky, but super fun. And I'm really proud of where we're at today. Awesome. Awesome. And so where is your, are your parents still operating a restaurant? No, they sold it so long ago, but they are still very much foodies and into the food scene. Okay. Awesome. And where was their restaurant located? So their restaurant was located in Windsor, Ontario, which is a small city in Canada, right on the border to the U.S. So right across from us, like five minutes away is Detroit, Michigan. Oh, okay. Did you ever consider like kind of picking up the restaurant mantle at any point? You know what is funny? No. So because my family had been in the restaurant business, they strongly encouraged me not to go down that path. It's Mm. really, really hard, you know, to operate a restaurant and it takes a long time to be profitable. And so when they started, it was in the nineties and this was pre anybody knowing about outside of the community, really understanding what Ethiopian food is. So it was a really difficult venture, especially Mm. in a small, like white city. But (laughs) I think like they set kind of like the, they opened the doors for others. So now there's so many successful Ethiopian restaurants and it's actually still open today and operating uh, under like new management. Oh, wow. Okay. What do you think was kind of the, I guess in a broader food culture question, what do you think was the kind of the catalyst or like that moment where you realized like the food you were eating at home and things that your parents were cooking were all of a sudden in vogue or popular or finally being like appreciated and consumed in like a larger conversation? I think I had that awakening actually soon after experiencing like racism eating out. I was in this fellowship program and I remember one of the other people in my cohort brought their lunch in and they had made this Ethiopian dish And when they put it in the microwave, I was like, this smells like home. (laughs) You know, like I could smell those spices. And she was like, yeah, I have this, you know, berry spice. She couldn't really say it the right way, but she knew what she was talking about. And, Mm. you know, she, 
her along with some other people in the program, they had like loved Ethiopian food. This is in Toronto. So there's a huge, you know, Ethiopian community there. And if you go down certain neighborhoods, you'll see like a strip of just Ethiopian and Eritrean restaurants. So it's become like popular amongst people outside of the community. And that was so different than what I was used to as a kid, because as a kid, I smelled like onions and I didn't want to smell like onions or spices. And <laughs> everything was weird, you know? So, it's such um, a so for you, like, what did you pursue in like your like scholarly work? What did you go to college for? Good question. So I started out in Michigan and then I transferred to a university in Toronto. I was studying sociology. So I was always very like interested in race and gender and equity and how to make this world, you know, a better place for us, but I didn't actually, I thought I was going to go into education. I had applied to like a graduate program at Howard and, you know, I was planning to move back to the States and like just life ended up taking me on a different path. I got accepted into this like really strange, but cool fellowship program in Toronto where it was really like focused on entrepreneurship. And then that's kind of how I also started Black Foodie because I was in a space that encouraged me to grow and encouraged me to experiment. Wow, nice, nice. Now that first year of Black Foodie, like what was that journey like and what was kind of that, what was the, I guess, the moment leading up to it? I was telling people like, it's interesting in the journey, you kind of always have a sense that you're going to do something, but you're not quite sure like what or how it will like execute itself or express itself. So, and it was always typically like a trigger, like one of those hardcore, like very definable moments that goes, okay, there's going to be like before this and there's going to be after this. So what were those moments like leading up to you going, okay, this it's time to like watch that movie. And then what was that first year like for you? Well, I think being burned is pretty powerful. So you can, you know what I mean? Like, I think like, it's not like that was the first time I experienced racism at all because, you know, whether I was a student in Michigan or, you know, in Toronto, like looking for housing or something like you recognize pretty fast, like, okay, you know, you're getting treated differently because you're black. And I don't know why I never like thought critically about, how I looked at food, like the fact that I would never, you know, pack Ethiopian food for lunch mm. or, you know, I didn't go to these restaurants with friends that were not Ethiopian because, or not African. Cause I just thought, oh, this is going to be too different for them. You know, they're yeah. not going to want to do it. And I don't know why I thought like, well, I do know why it's cause I was like socialized to think this is strange. This is different fit in. Right. And also that like things that are fancy or worth paying more for come from some white institution or a white restaurant. And I mean, it's super problematic to like think like that, but I just didn't challenge, you know, the status quo. And right. you know, when you're treated poorly, it kind of wakes you up and you think, damn, why am I giving them money? They don't even like us, you know, exactly. <laughs> you know, they don't even want us here. And I don't mean all because there are so many great, you know, Italian restaurants and Greek restaurants and things that I love and I go to still, but, but it happens. It happens where people, you know, when I spoke up, people would say, Hey, black people are loud or they don't tip. They're super cheap or da da da. Like they just had all of these stereotypes. And like, I was getting these messages. People were sending me this. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, just in my head. And I think there was this assumption like, Oh, you're in Canada. You know, people assume 
in a city like Toronto, it's just this very tale, like, you know, utopia, that's, you know, it's very welcoming and diverse and it is diverse, but it's not always welcoming. Mm. And I think I got off the topic from your, your original question. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I was, you know, we were talking about like the catalyst to start, like, yeah. maybe like, you know, that moment where you kind of go, let's just pull the trigger and do it. Yeah. So to make a long story short, getting uncomfortable helped me like pull the trigger. It made me wake up and think this isn't okay. I need to put my money in places that care about me, but also I want to know more about this food that my parents love so much. I want to know more about my history. I want to connect with other black folks and learn about their foods because we're not going to see those on TV or at least not at that time. Mm. And I think that's what kind of pushed me to start black foodie. And at the same time, there were all these other, you know, inspirational people that were starting out like people like Zim who was starting travel noir or, Morgan who had Blavity and like right. all these really inspirational black women who were doing their thing and creating spaces for a community around a certain like, you know, issue or topic. And I thought, Hey, like, I love food. I'd love to do something like this for, for us in the food space. Nice. And that first year was the, I guess from the time you started to like right now, have you seen your initial or original intention like unfold? You know, like what were the challenges that you met? I mean, in 2015, essentially, you know, these are like really new conversations around food, not just outside of the community, but even within it. And so like getting people to trust you enough to like expose their world a little bit. I think that is definitely a, an exercise in trust and like knowing that you're going to like take care of their story, take care of like how they're presented. So like what did that first year look like and how... In like five years, looking back in hindsight, like what would you may have done differently to kind of see this vision unfold a little differently? Great question. So I think at that time, no, I don't think I would have envisioned, you know, Black Foodie to be what it is right now. I think I just also, I just didn't know what I didn't know. So I was learning a lot about, you know, websites and learning about how to foster community and just learning about food too, because I, I was not an expert. I don't even know if I'm not like, um, you know, some of the other people in this field, like you, like I wasn't trained as a chef or, mm. or any of those things. So I kind of just, you know, plopped myself in the space and became right. like a creator of sorts. And I just thought, okay, I know I'm not the expert and I'll never be the expert, but I'm going to surround myself with them and connect with chefs and just learn their stories and just ask questions. And that helped a lot. And so at the beginning, it just started like online, like creating resources, you know, sharing my personal favorites. And then I reached out to others who become contributors. And I reached out to chefs who were, you know, like owned their space. They knew what they were talking about and they mentored me. And then from there, I started hosting events because people wanted to come together and it was food is something you've just got to experience. Like you can look at as many pictures as you want or watch a video, which are all very entertaining, but you've got to try it yourself, you know? So that's when I started moving into events as well as content. Wow. So the first event that you had, when was that? And like, what was your, I guess, having to now do something new altogether again is like create an event and especially a food event. Like what was your experience doing that? Cause I know I've done my share of like uh, street food festivals and like having to cook outdoors and like having to set up a booth and waiting for the health inspector to come through. And like, I, you know, there's a, just a lot of moving parts when you're planning a food event, at least for, you know, in the United States and most cities, but for you, like what was that experience kind of like stepping into the role of like event planner 
and event, you know, executing an event to scale and, you know, getting it out of your head and like down the reality of it is in front of you. It was pretty fun. It was challenging though, because, you know, when you have limited funds, you got to make <laughs> things work with so it is what it is. So I want to keep that real. But uh, I think collaborating with other really awesome black women helped because they had skills that I didn't have and, you know, we could work together. And that's like a big thing I would, you know, encourage people to do is collaborate with other folks who, who are good at what they do and work together. And there was like an event planner I'd work with. I had like, you know, people on my team who would kill it at the events and also the community really bought into it. So, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe a caterer was late or yeah. something you know, <laughs> happened, but like, because we had built this community, people were pretty forgiving and like, you know, helpful. And I appreciated that, that they really were like supportive and let me grow because I did make mistakes and it also had like really fun community oriented events. I think, you know, people met their spouses at yeah. events for real. They got married and stuff. Nice. So, I think it was cool that we created an environment where people not only like met cool new chefs or learned about a catering service or a restaurant that they could try or even a new food. They also, you know, met other people and had this like sense of like celebration and felt like at home. I think that was the great thing about black food events. Oh, nice. What was your takeaways from like that first experience? Like you said, you know, you made your share of mistakes. Like what were your kind of overall lessons that kind of pushed you, that pushed you into the next either into the next event or into the next few years around Black Beauty? I think, you know, planning is essential. Like, you know, <laughs> think longer term, like really create like a, a map out your event months in advance um, to give yourself time and room to prepare accordingly. The other thing I learned is just that people were hungry. They were ready for it. So anytime mm. we you know, an event, you know, we had the community buy-in and we'd had like local media outlets reaching out. And it was because at that time it was so new, like people were not doing what we were doing in that city. And, you know, sometimes if I was going somewhere else, I'd just take it with me. Like I'd be like, I'm going to the UK. Hey, I'm going to do an enjoy and chill in the UK or, Hey, I'm coming to DC. Let's do a pop-up brunch or let's Last summer, we did something in Atlanta that was really fun with the East African community for this huge, essentially, you know, I love Essence Fest. It was it's basically like Essence Fest for Ethiopians and Eritreans. Yeah, it was a good time. So we had our Endure and Chill event there and it was awesome to do it again, like five years later in, you know, another city and um, have people come back, you know, that were visiting Atlanta join in. I think... The answer is like, I learned so many lessons. I don't know if I could sum it up in this thing, but I think that people right. were really searching for community and black foodie events helped them do that. Perfect. What's the notable differences between like holding an event in Toronto versus like holding an event in like an American metropolis at this point? Well, I think at the beginning, so when it came to like black foodie, it's very much proudly black like in your face, it's black for us, you know, by us, everybody is welcome, but you know, I don't stray away from like talking about our identity or our foods or our chefs. And I think in Toronto at the beginning, it was difficult to get brands to buy in mm. as they looked at this as uh, too political or uh, too black or whatever, like, you know, and it was tough. Whereas in the States, I think people just got it immediately like black foodie. I love it. And like anytime I'd walk 
in the airport or down the street or anything. Like I remember being in Washington, DC on a Sunday, like there were all these brunch parties happening and I was like going to my cousin's car and we kept getting stopped over and over again by people saying, where'd you get that shirt? I love that shirt. You know, like people just understood immediately. And mm. I, I love that because, you know, they get it. And I think that's shifting in Toronto and like here, like people were always supportive, but I think in terms of like the brand side, there was like this pushback. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay, because like evolution is for me right now is like everything. You can evolve and like grow and change. Mm -hmm. Specifically when you are presented with like new information and an experience, then I think you definitely will like enrich your life to venture outside of your like comfort zone in the box. Do you get back? Um, do you get back to the continent very frequently? Are you able to like visit pretty often? So specified continent here, African continent. Yeah. So I know I figured, um, so <laughs> <laughs> I was just in Ethiopia last fall. So in October I was there. And then the year before I was also in Ethiopia for a little while. And so kind of frequently, like I'm trying to go, I was hoping to go this year actually. And, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Have you noticed a change in like how food culture has evolved there over time? Like the few times you've gone, since you started Black Foodie, like what have you noticed in like the changes there? Oh yeah. So I personally, like with Black Foodie, we, you know, showcase things from across the continent, but personally being Ethiopian, I have that connection to, you know, my parents' homeland. So I, I you know, had the opportunity to visit several times and I see in Ethiopia, this really awesome emerging food scene from the diaspora that's come back to Ethiopia to set up businesses. So like people like me, like for instance, who, I wasn't even born there and don't speak the national language. Like I have peers that are going and creating restaurant concepts that are inspired by the food that they had in North America. So I think I see a lot of creativity. I see the diaspora making so many moves. There's just like so much opportunity. You really, it's the market is not saturated like it is over here. And I think there is, you know, this, there's this group of like young people that are searching for something different, mm, right? Okay. So the food is already amazing, but people are looking for unique experiences. So when I was there last, there was this new place called Desk Desk where they had a skating rink and they had like a theater and a burger joint and a pizza bar. Like it was like this crazy, like wow. okay. center. It was huge. It was huge. But they saw like, Hey, like all these Ethiopian families want to have a place to take their kids. And you know, we, they don't have Chuck E. Cheese, you know, out there. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> they created something. so it's not necessarily like the food was the standout part of this space, but they saw that there was something missing in the market and something that kind of concept might be really difficult to execute in the U S or in Canada without like a lot of capital, but they were able to do that you know, in Ethiopia and be really successful doing it. So I feel like there's just so much opportunities, but there is also like tons of challenges because you are dealing with a completely different system. And, you know, sometimes you get the runaround starting a business and, and things like that. So I don't want to paint it like it's like, it's like just go and open a business there. Like, no, don't do that. Exactly. There are challenges and there are, um, you know, unique barriers that you face there that you're not going to have in spots like here in where I'm in, in Canada or in the U.S. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Now, for those folks who have never been to an Ethiopian restaurant or sat at an Ethiopian table, what would you want them to know about the cuisine? Like, maybe go from like an overarching to like that's a very specific thing. How would you advise them to approach? So I would say come in with an open mind. Ethiopian food is very communal. It's steeped in like culture and history. So what you're eating is like what, you know, my great, great, great grandparents ate. Like we, we haven't the recipes at all. It's very much, you know, we stick to the injera, which is that, that spongy flatbread that's fermented and made with a grain that's super healthy for you called teff. It's gluten-free. So it's the food is also very friendly to different diets, you know, mm. whether gluten-free or you're vegan or you're, a, you know, a proud meat eater, there's something in there for you. Ethiopia is also the birthplace of coffee. It's where it was discovered. So we have this really rich Ethiopian coffee ceremony that takes place in both Ethiopia and Eritrea. So you get to really kind of like sit down and enjoy your food. Ethiopian food is not quick. It's something that you got to take a moment to rest and it, you got to do with friends. Like you share the same platter, you eat with your hands, you know, you've feed your guests and you finish with a round of coffee with incense burning and like popcorn is served at the same time. So it's a very like immersive experience. I think that if you're looking for a place to celebrate or maybe even take a date, you know, try an East African restaurant. I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, I will put that on my list. I will go by myself, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's my business. And French cooking or like traditional French instruction around culinary, they have like the five mother sauces. So is there something kind of like the equivalent to that in Ethiopian and East African cuisine? Is it like some like essential components to the diet or the plate that people can, might not recognize at first glance, but like after a while, they'll understand like these things will always be on the table. Yeah. So Ethiopia has like a ton of very flavorful spices and there's one core spice blend that is, you know, used in everything. It's called berbera and it's made with these like dried chili peppers and like 12 or more, you know, different spices. So it gives this food like a really like flavorful, smoky, spicy taste to it. We also use, you know, a lot of things like ginger and turmeric and lentils. So in Ethiopia and Eritrea, the Orthodox Christian faith is a big part of the culture. And in that faith, they fast two days a week and they also fast for months leading to certain religious holidays. And by fasting, I mean, not that they don't eat, but that they don't eat meat or dairy. Okay. So no matter where you go in the country, you will always have like vegan options on Wednesdays or Fridays, you can get a vegan tiramisu, you can get a vegan latte, you can get, you know, you have like all these like Ethiopian vegan lentil dishes that are like super flavorful and there's tons mm -hmm. of options. So I think that's one thing that people don't know that, you know, you can have really awesome plant-based food on the continent. So I know because it's like people kind of defer their travels because they're like, well, that's what they eat when I get there. And you're just like, um, mm -hmm. most communities, most cultures have a source of like, like some type of plant-based eating on, mm -hmm. in some capacity. Like there's, I don't think there's any like 100% carnivore. So yeah, I just, I remember there was a point in second or third grade and for some reason my parents decided they wanted to have an exchange student and that person was from Ethiopia. 
And so it was like kind of our first encounter with like a completely outside culture of people who still look like us. So we weren't quite sure what was going on. Her name was Wesson. And every now and again, her brother would come visit. And so it was just like really interesting. Like she used to teach us like certain dance, like traditional dances. She brought a lot of her clothes with her. So there was some stuff that was kind of ceremonial in there. And then she kind of explained why she ended up in the United States, which was a very politically driven, kind of like civil war rest of the time she came. And so I don't think she's returned. I actually think she still lives in California, but you know, she stayed and she got married and she has her kids and everything now. And I just like, remember like our first experience with the guy, it was like, like this woman came into our house and she was a college student. And it was just like, wow, okay. We don't know. We, Cause she would like speak to her mother on the phone. And we were like, I don't know what's happening. What is she saying? <laughs> what's going on? And so, yeah, it was just, and it was always like such an interesting like tie in. Cause my mom tried to explain to us like exactly where, this person is from and like this is where it is on the map and this is like culturally what you know we do and so we didn't really shift our like the way we ate in the house i think things got a little bit the flavors got a little more complex on account of it but yeah but for the most part it was just such a, like a fascinating moment in my like very young life because most like even today my mom will ask like do you remember her i was like of course i was old enough to be nosy and curious so absolutely I remember her. So yeah, so that's always like Ethiopia is always like part of the, the soundtrack of my childhood from that. So for like right now, like what are you thinking or what are you what's your opinion about like where we are with like food and specifically black food and like what do you how is this you know, this moment the combination of madness like kind of affecting your brand and like have you like kind of reevaluated your attention with what you could be doing like going forward? Yes. And well, I think just this year has been really super interesting and like life changing in so many ways with COVID. And then now with folks waking up and, you know, supporting us finally, you know, finally. like, I mean, black folks in general across mm-hmm. the board, because, you know, unfortunately governments have been using police to oppress black people in so many parts of the world, including Canada. And it's inspiring to see people that are now like, you know, rising up and challenging this together. Like people have always, there've always been activists. There've always been people pushing against this system, but now there seems to be buy-in from other communities. Like they are actively supporting. So it's this really strange, like culture shift to witness. I think when it comes to and I mean strange as in strange in a good way. Like, I'm just surprised. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, mean, I think we all woke up shocked a couple of weeks ago. Like, what is happening right now? Yeah, it's especially being in this, you know, Canadian context. I spend a lot of pre-COVID. I spent like half my time in the U.S. Now with COVID, I'm sort of stuck right now. So I can't cross the yes. border. <laughs> right. So it was always hard being in Canada and doing something like Black Foodie because you know, brands were not about it. They did not see the value in this. They weren't, you know, using anything proudly black in their campaigns. And, you know, we would always have to, you know, explain so much why we are needed. You know, people Mm. would, Hey, why is it called black foodie? Or why is this like, they were literally just challenging the essence of who we are because essentially they're challenging why black folks need their own space or why black folks proudly celebrate their own foods. And that's at the core of it. Cause like, I'm like, there's no other reason why you would have to question us. Do you question an Italian food blog? No. Like, you know what I mean? So. Right. Yeah. Oh God. That makes absolute sense. Like I was talking with 
was speaking with my younger brother last night and we were kind of talking about that. It was just like when you're so used to kind of being like the default for everything, <laughs> the minute people try to carve out and preserve space for their own self or their culture or their people, it's like, it's questioned. It's just like, well, why? Why do you need to not be, why do you need your own space? Why do you need to, you know, separate yourself out? And it was like, are you serious right now? Like, did you not notice that while I might be in the room, I'm not allowed to sit down. So like, it doesn't really matter if I'm invited to space. So yeah, I absolutely like, I can, I can see it. people definitely have very charged questions about less about what you're doing and more about why you're doing it. Yeah. It was frustrating. I'm just going to be honest. It's, it was very frustrating to get those types of questions because it's over and over and over again. And now there seems to be this complete shift where, you know, people are seeking us out. They're asking questions, they're learning, they're, you know, they're offering opportunities, they're partnering with us. So, you know, I'm excited about this shift. I'm excited because there are many projects that we want to get out there that we needed support for. And now it's finally happening. So it's this exciting time with Black Foodie. I think you're going to see a lot more come out from with us and the team Great. in the next few months. And I'm, I'm very excited. And I'm also excited for everything else happening. Like I'm excited for your podcast. I'm excited for all the cookbooks that are about to be written because oh, publishers. So many. It's going to be glorious. You know? Yeah. Like, because there's this whole space that, you know, we knew about, but had been, you know, untapped from like outside communities. And I have been like, really like, vocal about this but like everybody can buy black like it's not something you need you know you don't have to right you do not have to be black to buy black because it's you know when people ever took a minute and thought about it in reverse mm. like no one is ever saying oh you have to be white in order to buy white it's just assumed like everybody's going to because that's what's available and that's like you know that's the vast majority and that's the kind of the dominant culture so there's never any discussions around like, well, you know, you can only buy that, you know, except for like maybe like the Jim Crow era. And even then it was like, well, you still have to drink from this water fountain mm -hmm. and it's the one we've provided, but it's on the backside of the building. So, you know, there's really never any questions around kind of like white centered consumption. And again, it's more like question when someone has carved out some space and like really stuck a flag on a hill and said like, this is a black owned business. And like, I, I remember working through a description of the podcast and it was just like do i put the word black here and like like black owned or black hosted and like you know some other idea you know other business ventures i've had where i do like do i promote the fact that it's black owned and i was like but they always encourage you to say like woman owned mm -hmm. so why wouldn't you like use black owned and it was just like there's just so many questions and like there's so much labor behind explaining that to people and like justifying your choice to say it that it's just like well you know then why do you need to point out that it's black why does it matter and i'm just like well it doesn't necessarily have to matter to you like no one's saying you're required to make it important to yourself but to understand that there is a distinction because we are rarely part of the discourse we're rarely part of the landscape of commerce in that way and so it's just nice to kind of point out hey this is a black owned brand so you know there's very specific things that come with being a black owned brand that a lot of people won't understand. So to be able to say that, because again, like the default mode is not like anyone's running around going, this is a white owned brand. This is a, a male owned brand. It was like, you know, there's distinctions for women owned, there's distinctions for minority owned for a reason. And so, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch the new response to our eternal existence on this. <laughs> and it's like you know in try to 
fight back the skepticism of it and like not be cynical and go like, well, where were you last year? Where were you five years ago? Mm -hmm. Uh, Seriously, I've been doing the same work all this time. And it hasn't changed just because you've discovered it. So it's like, explain to me, like, what, why did I all of a sudden become very important? That is very true. I'm glad you mentioned that because it is kind of like jarring. You're like, wait, like, I feel like people have been gaslighting me this whole time. (laughs) Right. I'm like, okay, so I wasn't crazy. Like, I knew you were like not paying me any attention. I absolutely was very clear about what was happening because now the opposite is happening. It's just like, oh, now you have to explain yourself. Like, talk to me about that. Exactly. Yeah. So there's this, and I, I'm sure like you and other black people in the content creation space are, you know, they're seeing this shift happening and it's, it's hard, you know, to be optimistic and think, Hey, they're going to keep doing this. But like, I'm trying to stick to that, you know, mental space because I know that our community has always been supportive. They've always bought into this and they've, you know, the products that we feature, they purchase it, the articles that we post they're reading it. They're coming to our event. So I know that they're always going to be there. I'm just glad to see these brands are finally about it, you know? <laughs> and right. I just, it's funny. Like I'm waiting for the moment. And I don't know if it's going to ever show up. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for that moment where people finally go, you know, what? we were wrong. Yeah, we get it now. Like why? Because you know, somewhere in the back of most people's brains, specifically large corporations and brands, they absolutely understand that what we do as black people, we influence culture in a very large way. Like I was watching, oh, I can't remember her name. And she was maybe I'll try to like link to her clip in. Mm-hmm. But she was talking about there's a, a really brilliant black woman who like posts to Instagram periodically, and she'll talk about like just kind of revelations she's had or things that she's thinking about. And then yesterday she was talking about how blackness is like a technology, and it's the technology of like survival and the technology of creativity. And without this technology, most of the civilizations that we all exist in would not have survived or thrived. Mm. And it's just like, it was a really beautiful analogy because people don't think about it in that sense. Like it's, it's like a software program that helps your computer run better. And so you didn't know you needed it until you downloaded it and start running it. And you're just like, wow, like I've been opened up to a whole new world now. And so I think most brands definitely secretly recognize that black people influence culture you know, most of the time, like hip hop is everywhere. Beyonce is everywhere. Like it just, you know, like those particular, you know, those two things are like kind of the most obvious, but we have influenced food for hundreds of years on the continent. We inform choices, we inform consumer goods. We inform, like there's all of those, like all of what we do, like, you know, it's worn in the street until it's worn on the runway. And so, you know, like people forget, like there's always, our stuff is always being like translated into a space of commerce that can be consumed by everybody. So I'm feeling like, okay, you guys, any minute, you go ahead and like write your apology, ignore all of us and understand, like, you know, she even said that the reason why you may have probably found joy during the quarantine is because a black creator showed up on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook mm-hmm. on YouTube and created something that brought you a little bit of joy. The majority of things that happened, like DJ Nice, you know, spinning every single night, the TikTok dance challenges, like all of those things kind of come from our communities. And so like, if you found a little bit of joy over these last few months, it's likely because there's a black creator somewhere making sure it happens. Yes. So now it's just like, go ahead and write your post-it note of apology. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. We create the trends. We change culture. We we push the culture forward in every industry. 
And they noticed that in a lot of the things except for food. And now with food, there is this shift in like, you know, Bon Appetit is being challenged and, you know, all these other major publications are being challenged on, you know, why they're not, you know, featuring these stories or featuring these chefs or these restaurants that come out of our community. And I'm really glad that these conversations are happening. I'm also happy that like our platforms exist. And I think no matter what we need to continue to exist because we center our experience. And I think that has to happen in this space because even if it, you know what I mean? I'm seeing these, you know, awards for restaurants or these things that are happening and, you know, people are saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to give up my slot. We need to have like a black restaurant recognized or a whatever thing. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like as an individual to make that decision, but I'm questioning why are these standards so white? You know, <laughs> like why? Exactly. Like why? Like, and I think that's for me, like, that's the thing I want them to kind of grapple with. Like, why have we centered ourselves so much? Like, why has that always been, why has that always led culture? Like we, you know, there's been some contributions, you know, by us, but it's like the vast majority of the time we are promoting other cultures that we have either assimilated or gentrified or, you know, appropriated. And so we're pushing their narratives forward as our own. And it's just like, have you, you know, have you really ever stopped to think about like, I can't imagine working at a food magazine and constantly like telling kind of the same stories with the same storytellers. I don't know if it would feel honest to me, like, wait a minute, like I eat at all of these other restaurants that are like from different cultures that had, you know, their tables look different, their meals look different, their spice profiles look different. And yet we'd never really talk about them unless they're like trending or we still speak of them like they're in other. And so like, you know, to be honest with yourself and look at the conditions that you're working in and look at the state of like the corporation or the company you work in and kind of like now question yourself, like, well, wait a minute, why am I okay with this space heavily featuring me and my needs and like my privilege and like those things? It's like, why are we at the center of everything? Because I don't know if, you know, if it's as a result of kind of always being a minority or an other that we've had to constantly think about other people and how to integrate their spaces and how to figure out how to center our own selves in them. And so we do kind of question that already or is it that it's just like, no, we're not going to ask those questions because it's like, well, there's no real answer or the answer is, is something I might not necessarily like, or I like the answer and I have no intentions of changing anything because this works for me. So it's like, there's very few options here in that conversation. So I'd love to see like someone like sit down and go, wait a minute, like, I think we deserve to be having a record right now. I think in order to move food media forward, we have to have, we have to sort this out. We have to ask these questions. Otherwise, it doesn't grow. It doesn't go anywhere. Exactly. I agree. I think it's time for these big brands. Like I've been, oh, in Canadian media, just like speaking, like I'm not holding anything in. I'm just telling them, okay, support black outlets, support black media outlets, because these white magazines will make one list and continue on their happy way. Like and we do all they've already like, you know, the thing that people are kind of posting now, it's like, look, your feed may have gone back to normal but black lives still matter. And it's just like, it's that same principle. It's like, okay, we posted our list. We've called on a couple of black writers to create a couple of articles for us and we should be good now. And it's just like, okay, try Exactly. There's no, something that I've been really proud of with Black Foodie is we've been really intentional about supporting and amplifying the movement in whichever ways we can. 
like we had this challenge. We talked about it as a team. Like, do we want to post these things because we don't want to like re-traumatize, you know, our community. Cause you know, right. it is traumatic to like wake up every morning and see somebody who looks like you has been killed, you know, and we wanted to create like a space where people could feel like they felt community and like uplifted. And so what we try to do is like, Hey, okay, are we going to amplify this, you know, fundraising effort? Are we going to talk about these like petitions that people need to sign? Are we going to be sharing these posts from like our community who are at the protests or people who are feeding the protests? And we started bringing in business owners on our Instagram lives and asking them like, okay, what's going on in Minneapolis? How can we support you? Or what's going on in Michigan? How can we support you? Or what's going on in, you know, Toronto? How can we support you? And it was great to see these like really different black perspectives from across North America. And they were chiming in and giving people tangible ways that we could help. And I think people, you know, appreciated that. And I started seeing that, you know, black folks were listening, but so were all those, you know, new white women that were following us. Like they were tuning in to Right. Yeah. And because, you know, we were shared on all these pages. So we had this like influx of people who are outside the community following us. And I was really happy to see that they were engaging and learning and listening and that like Black Beauty could be a tool for them to do better, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's been an interesting like balance to kind of like watch people's timelines because where you mm-hmm. don't, you don't want to like do too much of the labor for people. You really want them to mm-hmm. do the work themselves because you just absolutely yeah. have to. At the same time, you want to always feel like, okay, I'm supporting our narrative. I'm pushing our narratives forward. And at the same time, not like doubling down on like videos and a lot of bad news and a lot of negativity because you're just like, you know, this is still a space primarily being held for black people. And so I want to make sure they feel like safe and comfortable and like this is a healthy space to be in and they're not going to constantly have to watch a new trauma over and over again. So I know I'm definitely trying to avoid like reposting things about you know, what's continuing to happen. So yeah, because it's, you know, we're constantly inundated with, with new news and new information anyway. So I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, woke up this morning and there's, you know, this 18-year-old girl who sat on fire oh by the, like, white supremacist guy. Like, it was just, it's nonstop. Yes. And so, like, you know, I have to be really mindful on my platforms to, like, balance the kind of content that's going there because I, I want you to be informed on what you know what's happening at the same time. I don't want you to like show up every single time you show up, you're like traumatized. Yeah. So it has been interesting. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. tough. I legit would wake up in the morning and somebody, like, I was tagging things that I'm like, people shouldn't see. Like, this, I can't continue. And I know it happens. I'm going to read about it. Personally, I don't want to, you know, traumatize people by seeing these images of, like, I want to respect that person's right. body. You know what I mean? And they were posting, you know, they're posting things that are disrespectful to the person that has died. You know, exactly. that's the thing. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta think about like how this is impacting people. Like, but at the same time, I'm like, I know people have to wake up and for some people that's their wake up call. Yeah. So it is really hard. I don't know where to stand on it, but I do know personally, like I was getting up and I remember I was doing, I talked about this on my page, but like I was, you know, trying to amplify what was going on with Brianna Taylor. And she just looks so much like a restaurant owner that I'm friends with. And I couldn't unsee it. And I just started crying, like bawling. I couldn't, I, and I had a meeting in like 
20 minutes after that. And I was like, my eyes were red. I'm trying to put water in my eyes. And I was like, this is not something I can like detach myself from. It's not like she could have been yeah. my friend. She could have, it could have been me. It could have been my cousin. It could. So you can't like disengage, right? Because you, you want to be a part of this and doing your part. Exactly. But I'm like, it's like, it's overwhelming, you know? It really is. And yeah. I, I don't know if people like appreciate what it's like to look like a person mm. that has like, you know what I mean? Like you're kind of like, I'm looking at myself and looking at someone I know. I'm looking at a relative. I'm looking at a close friend and you just, you're not looking at a stranger outside of your own experience. And I think it's like people have to kind of appreciate the fact that as a black person, as a black woman specifically, like when you are constantly seeing like, okay, Breonna Taylor has officially like her case is just gone on for over a hundred days and nothing has happened. And you just kind of go, how do you want me to define that? Like, what do you want me to believe about your lack of action around this and like you know there was a huge huge push to make sure you know there was justice for george and absolutely it should have been and it was just like with the minute it felt like there was a turning point there it was just like but brianna is still sitting out here and her case is pretty plain it's pretty cut and dry we know exactly what happened none of the stories have really changed what is going on like no one's answering any questions. It's just like, okay. And then you keep push. you have to keep pushing the narrative in order to keep it in front of people to help them mm-hmm. remember, like, these are not things you can forget. This is how we end up going back to what we were before is that we forget that these people have suffered untimely and horrific deaths at the hands of a group or an organization that's supposed to protect them. And it's just indicative of a larger problem. So it's just like, we can't allow you to forget because we're not allowed to forget. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in order to change it, we have to move together. But like to look at someone like Brianna and go, okay, she looks like my cousin. It's like, if something happened to my the direct family member like that, would, you know, have to, to have to go three months and not have much of anything happen except for like one guy to get fired. I'm just like, what do I have to do? What do we, like, how do we convince you that it's worth your time to pursue answers on behalf of this person? And, you know, being an EMT, having worked a double shift in the middle of a pandemic, and it's like, there's no urgency about her life and her death and how her life ended. I don't, I'm still like frustrated and like enraged a bit about that. Because it's just like, what does that mean for all the black women that I know? Like, how are we supposed to translate that? So, yeah. So, I mean, it's just definitely been like a huge challenge to just continue like to kind of to stay in a healthier space about it at the same time, not let people off the hook because if they don't, if, like you had pointed out before, like being uncomfortable is really one of those things that can be like a catalyst for action. And so people just have to stay uncomfortable as long as possible until we see some action around some of this stuff. So for the future of black beauty in the coming years and like adding more to your plate, what does the future of black beauty look like? What are your kind of like, huge ambitions and then what are some of the things you're kind of like yeah we're constantly working on like improving these particular things and you know the things that you really feel like you're winning at and that you're going to just continue great question so there are so many things on our wish list and dream list (laughs) and we're working towards it so you know i work with two really awesome women ellen and kama and we've just been really like shooting our shots and creating plans and like collaborating. And we have like a couple of exciting projects, which I will tell you guys next time, because I want to make no sure that 
you know, they yeah. like everyone I talk to, they're like, I have things in the works, I just can't talk about them, but know that they're out here. Like, that's perfectly okay. We yeah. will wait in anticipation. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the support. I'm very excited. Just no weird where we're heading is to you know, towards more original content. Like we're really, we're pitching right now. Like we have so many ideas when it comes to content and shows that I think are needed in the space. Black people make amazing food. And we also have this amazing food culture. And especially like personally being, you know, having such strong roots back to the continent and also with the team, like it's Caribbean and, you know, West African and Ethiopian, like so East African in the mix, we want to see those foods reflected. We want to see our indigenous foods reflected on screen. And so we're really pushing for that. We're also, you know, trying to be more of a resource to our community. So we've done really fun things and we're going to continue doing it like our Black Foodie Battle, where we put out challenges to our community. And each week we create an episode with like all sorts of fun takes, home chef takes on ingredients that are special to us, to the culture, ingredients like black eyed peas, ingredients like okra and things like fried chicken that get these really negative stereotypes attached to it when it's been a source of pride and you know, a pathway to financial independence for many folks in our community. So we bring in food scholars, we bring in chefs to talk about techniques and we are like excited to kind of like shift the narrative and, you know, kind of like boldly claim what is ours and not try to fit within somebody else's box. So with Black Foodie, essentially you're going to see some more original content. You're going to see some helpful resources for our audience, both the foodies and the creators as well. So right now brands, we're having so many conversations with brands. We want to be able to pass on these opportunities to other people in our community. We're pushing everyone that works with us to be working with other Black folks. You know, we can't just be the last stop. And so we're hoping to connect people and I can talk more about that after, but (laughs) (laughs) there's, so there's there's a lot of different things. Biggest thing being, you know, more original content, more resources, and hopefully you guys will hear about some exciting events, you know, in the next. So how can we as a community like support you support work? I know I watch and I try to consume as much of the content as I possibly can. So on videos and blogs and watching all, even the YouTube videos are of some of your events and all of those things. So I definitely consume a lot of that content. How can we support you? Where can we find you? How can people connect with Black Foodie and Jen? So I appreciate that question. There's so many ways you guys can support. The first one being so super free and super easy. Just follow us <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> and YouTube and, you know, subscribe to our email list. We won't bother you with emails. We'll just pop up every now and then with some fun stuff. And another way, like if you want to support is, you know, filling out the survey, we're really trying to collect data on our audience on how we operate as consumers, because this is helpful to us when we're pitching brands and showcasing to them why it's important they're working with black creators and working with a platform like black food. So we have this really short, like five minute survey that's up on our site. Lastly, if they want to support in a financial way, they can, you know, subscribe to our Patreon and have a monthly pledge or donate to our PayPal. But that one is like no pressure. I know this is tough times. So a very easy and simple way to you know, support us is just to follow us, engage with our content and tell us how we can do better. You know, we are not perfect. So we are always growing and learning. So if you think like, 
hey, you got to be, you know, putting more content from Nashville or maybe we're missing out on a certain recipe or whatever, you know, we're super open and like excited to hear feedback. Oh, nice. Okay. I mean, you heard that folks like, you know, don't complain, but you know, be a problem solver, offer solutions. Yeah. There offer you solutions. Offer some solutions. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, I can be supportive directly. I am more than happy to do so. So I thank you again so, so much. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you to our guests for spending some time with us. And thank you for listening in and for being a part of the Flyest Click in podcasting. If you love these conversations, be sure to download, subscribe, comment, and share. You can get further connected with the Afros and Knives community by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to visit our website, afrosandknives.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Afros and Knives does this work only with the financial support of our Patreon community. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video as well as offering patron-only content this year, and you don't want to miss out. Until next week, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at peace. <laughs>